so neat. So uh, we were this morning supposed to install our new consistory members, our new elders and deacons. Um, but I have a, a rethink. I've decided I don't want to install those folks that we've chosen. No, I'm just kidding. We totally forgot. We just completely blanked it. Um, and I would call you up and do it anyways, but I really love uh, the words uh, that we read and um, uh, the liturgy that's behind it. It's meaningful and important. So I don't want to just do it without thinking of it. So new consistory members, I apologize uh, that we missed it. So sorry about that. Would you forgive me? Yes. Okay. Thank you for that. We will get it sometime soon, but I don't want us to, I don't want it to, us to do it half-hearted. I want it to be meaningful and significant. Okay. Amen. All right, um, that really threw me off from what I was going to say this morning. All right, but I have extra time now since we're not doing that. I know where I was going to start. I was going to start with a little bit of history. Um, it was in the 1940s, and there was um, the Allied forces were in retreat. They were in France, and Nazi Germany soldiers were pursuing um, the Allied forces. They had surrounded and trapped them in a city called Dunkirk. And uh, eventually, um, they thought this was the moment of uh, annihilation and surrender. There was, uh, as I understand it, over 300,000 British soldiers that were in France trying to support France. There were other Allied soldiers, and they were they had retreated to Dunkirk, and yet uh, Nazi Germany was close and, and closing in. Uh, some of you might have seen the movie called Dunkirk by Christopher Nolan. It's a powerful movie. It's not necessarily a date night movie. It's not a romantic comedy. By any stretch, it's, uh, it's this window of the intensity in that moment. I just wanted to show uh, a few of the scenes from the movie, and it's overlaid with Winston Churchill's words, what he said uh, by radio address uh, to the nation of England about the war, even though things looked pretty dismal at this point. We should prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, if necessary alone. At any rate, that is what we are going to try to do. That is the resolve of his majesty's government, every man of them. That is the will of parliament and the nation. The British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, 
We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. It's funny, I was listening to a sermon by uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, because of uh, the day, Monday, and he, his delivery was so inspirational. It's like he could tell you to jump off the bridge and be like, yes! And then I listened to Winston Churchill, and I was like, hey, <laughs> was that really inspirational? I mean, good thing the content was good, because he sounds like a, a sleepy Eeyore, right? You can barely understand, like, did he nod off during the message, right? But, but he was saying, I, I love the, the content. He, he's saying, in a, in a rather dry English way, we'll fight in France, We'll fight in the streets. Doesn't matter what happens. Whatever the consequence, it, we'll, we'll fight. We're not going to give up. Underlying that is because it's the right thing to do. It's, it's what we're called to do for this world. We're going to stand up against evil and will entrust the consequences to God. There's a story I've shared before, because I, I love the story um, that's connected to Dunkirk, is that the story is at, at the, the worst moment when all the Allied forces were gathered in Dunkirk, and they, they had no idea if they were going to be rescued. There was a good chance um, that it was going to be surrender or annihilation. And they sent a message. And the message that this British officer sent and began to filter through all the troops was boiled down to a three-word message. And those three words were, but if not. But if not. And I guess as the story goes, it became a rallying cry for the Allied forces in the moment of Dunkirk and beyond. And those three words, but if not, represent an invitation to believe, an invitation to be courageous, an invitation to what I would call a humble, courageous Faith in God for whatever happens, but if not. Those three words actually come from the 
the scripture, the, the chapter that we're going to be looking at this morning. Would you turn with me to, to Daniel 3? We've been walking through this, uh, uh, the book of Daniel. And this invitation, is a, uh, this uh, chapter is a well-known story having to do with a fiery furnace. Many of us grew up, right, with hearing the the uh, Sunday school story about King Nebuchadnezzar and uh, the and the statue that he builds. He builds this 90-foot statue. It's really unfortunate because remember in chapter 2, for those of you who were here, right, he had a dream, he saw the statue, and God was like, you're the head of gold, but there's many kingdoms coming after. And it led Nebuchadnezzar to, to worship and, and praise the one true living God. But then just a few verses later, he builds this 90-foot statue, right? We're not sure if it was of himself. I'm guessing it was of himself. And uh, it could have been to his gods. And he declares that when all the instruments play and there's an announcement, there's a dedication that everyone in all the kingdoms, in, in, in all the area that he rules and reigns, are to bow and worship to this 90-foot statue, right? Problem for the people of God. For the Jews, right? That's, that's called idolatry. And God said, don't do that. Doesn't matter if they're a little tiny guy or a big 90 foot. No. There's one true living God. Now, we met not only Daniel in chapter 1, but his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We actually don't know what happens to Daniel. Maybe he was too high up um, after chapter 2 that um, some of the other governmental officials from Babylon would not criticize him because he's too powerful. Maybe he was away on mission. We don't know what happened, but really it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that, that this chapter is about. And they're like, uh, we can't do that. There's an issue, there's a, there's a problem, there's a struggle. And the king is very clear that if you don't bow down to this statue, then it's the furnace for you. So the king is told about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Some other officials tell on them. And we're going to pick up the story at verse 13. Just read a few verses here. It says, Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. He's giving them another chance to do what's right in his eyes. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? It's an interesting question. We'll just let that linger for a moment. Right? I wanted to pause 
and just wonder what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have been thinking in this moment. What have they been praying, building up to this confrontation with the king? What have they been saying? God, help! Maybe. We don't know. What have they been praying? I was wondering a bit about if they would have turned to some promises of God. They would have had not, of course, all of the Old Testament in their hands, but they would have had much of the Old Testament in their hands. And they would have had the Psalms. And I wonder if they would have turned to the Psalms and read over and prayed over the Psalms. They must have done something because we're going to see that they were really courageous in this moment. I I was actually thinking of Psalm 23, right? It could have been their favorites, many of our favorites, right? Right? The, the father is a good shepherd and he makes some promises to us. I was, I was thinking of verse 4 in particular. It's not in your outline. I'll just read it to you. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. They were in a valley right now. There's the shadow of death that was hanging over them. The threat of the king. And uh, King David said, I will... Fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I wonder if they focused on those truths or other truths and said, God, we we need you in this moment. We, We need you to be with us. We don't know how, what is going to happen. There's this threat that's completely contrary to your revealed will of what we should do. So we're looking at these promises that you have given your children through King David and we want to hold them in the midst of King Nebuchadnezzar. We've been praying uh, for Sim Bodie. Uh, Janet Bodie is our children's director, and, and Sim's been struggling with some significant things, heart valve, and he's been surgery. Please, if you would pray for Sim, continue to pray. He, he's doing well. But Janet is texting some of the staff and some leaders. And, and uh, of course, Janet has this beautiful faith, and she's praying over Sim. and. And she's reading the word of God. She's, I guess, singing over Sim, huge testimony. And I, I believe it was Psalm 121. She says, would you join me in taking the, wor- the Lord at his word? Would you join me in taking the Lord at his word? And that just struck me. I said, yeah, that, isn't that a cool part of being a Christian, a child of God, that the Lord invites us to take him at his word. 
He invites us to know his word, to, to even sometimes memorize and preach his word, but he invites us. He says, yes, I'm giving you these promises. I'm saying these things to my children, not just for them in the moment, but for you who would follow, to, re, to understand the kind of God that I am, who I am, and the relationship that I want with you. And he was saying to David, I'll be your good shepherd. I'll promise to protect you and watch over you. I'll promise in the, in the valleys, in the peaks, I'll be with you. I wonder if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego looked at a, another promise. This one fits pretty well. Isaiah 43, 2, they might have had on their hands. This one says, this is the Lord speaking to his children. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. I wonder if they were like, God, this isn't a chance. <laughs> that not to be symbolic language, but we can feel the fire coming. Lord, you made this promise of protection. I also wonder if they wouldn't have had, of course, the New Testament. But I love how in the New Testament we have, uh, Hebrews author says, better promises. In fact, what he says to a certain degree is he clarifies those promises and maybe even expands these promises. And I, I think Jesus, this idea of Psalm 23, when it says, you will be with, for you are with me, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. You remember that? And then he gives us these with, these presence promises that I think we can claim. And he actually expands on those. John 14, 3 says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, Jesus is talking about returning to heaven, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. He takes the promise of presence and with, and he says, I'm going to give you this promise for all eternity. Not in just the difficult moments, but forever. And then a few verses later, he says this, again, expanding on this promise. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. He says, by the way, I'm going to the Father, and I'll come back. But in the meantime, the spirit of the living God will live within you. He's not just going to be next to you. But, but the Lord, his presence, I, Jesus says, will dwell inside of you to bring comfort and strength all through that. We don't know the promises that they read. We, we don't know what they said, but... I, we know that they turn to the Lord in the midst of this dilemma. 
And it's an invitation for you and I to do the same. Let's read the rest of the story and pick it up after. Maybe you'll notice something if you're familiar with the story, some nuances, some differences there. Verse 16 continues, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But if not. But if not. Now, NIV, it used to translate it like New King James and King James, but they slightly changed it. It's okay. You could say, but even if, right? But even if are three good words. But I prefer the but if not. But we'll come back to the meaning and understanding that. But if not, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. No more second ch- no more chances. This is it. He ordered the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. He wanted to make sure the job gets done and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men? Weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I... I see four men walking around on the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. That's just awesome, right? The best moments in the Old Testament. Again, a better translation, I was reading an article, is the son of God. Is a better translation. NIV switches it a little bit. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. They said, no, we'd like to hang out. I think I would have said no. (laughs) I digress. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps Prefects, governors, and the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Jesus is just showing off left and right in this moment. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces. <laughs> oh, Nebuchadnezzar. And their houses be turned into piles of rubber for no other God can save in this way than the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. All right, what a story, an incredible story that I believe this is a Christophany. It is Jesus comes. There's debate on that. It's not important in the story, really. It could be an angel. Nowhere else does someone see the, a divine presence and say, it looks like the Son of God or Son of God. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that. There's this beautiful moment that I would say Jesus comes, right, pre, uh, pre his Christmas, okay, he comes and he's there. So this beautiful moment, but really what I think is most intriguing to me is their statement of faith and the invitation to the kind of faith that he invites us to. That, that this faith that I really want in my life, that, that I really long to live. In fact, these verses, verses 16 and 17, if you have your own Bible, I would circle those verses because th these are, I'm sorry, verses 17 and 18. They say this, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. What, what confidence, what courage, what faith. And yet they continue. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. G.K. Chesterton said this, courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live taking the form of a readiness to die. A strong desire to live taking on the readiness to die. We see this expression of faith that I, what I would say is simultaneously courageous and humble. That they live in this incredible and amazing tension of the two. And there's this invitation the story of to, to do both, that they say, we trust in God 
And he's all powerful. He's almighty. He is the God of gods. And we want you to know that he is over every other God. And this furnace, that's nothing. And yet at the same time, they say, in terms of how it all rolls out, it's up to God. But if not, the British soldiers saying, but if not, we're going to fight. We're going to fight in the streets and in France and the air. We will, we will not give up, but if not, we're still, we're still going to fight. I want that same kind of faith, that courageous and humble faith. You know, there was a, a study done in England, London, just a number of years ago, and um, uh, they went about asking, they went actually door to door about faith and belief in God because at Dunkirk in World War II, the faith was elevated. People were praying and praying and there's church. You, you can see some of the history of that. And yet just a number of years ago, they went around door to door and they were asking, do you believe in a God who intervenes in human history, who changes the course of affairs, who performs miracles? They, they were asking, do you believe in this kind of God? When they published the study, they titled it after a response of one man that seemed to characterize most of the folks and how they responded. He said, no, I don't believe in that God. I believe in an ordinary God. How quickly people forget lessons of history. I thought, man, I, I don't want to believe in an ordinary God. I, I don't want to place my faith. I don't want to simply pray for comfort, even though sometimes I pray for comfort. But I want to pray in a, to a supernatural God that intervenes and works. And I want to have that, that same courageous faith that Shadrach and company had, right? I, I want to believe and really believe and trust and yet at the same time bring a humility to that faith. So I was praying through and working through and thinking about how, how do we do that? How do we grow that kind of courageous and humble faith? I think two is an attitude or perspective and second is an action. I want you to, I want you to see these two things that I believe that the Lord's inviting me to, to press into an attitude of prayer and an action connected to prayer. Courageous, humble prayer. The first is this. Let's talk about the attitude. The attitude of, uh, of prayer is that the, the courageous and humble attitude is that our faith is rooted in God and not consequences or results. In fact, Jesus says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
I think oftentimes we miss this kind of courageous, humble faith because we miss the, the source the focus of where we're supposed to place our faith and our prayers. Do we get to pray for results? Do we get to pray uh, for those very specific answers to prayer? You betcha, we do. Jesus tells us specifically. We get to pray for those specifics and ask God and say, God, you said this. and God, would you work in this way? God, would you heal so-and-so? We get to do that. Absolutely. He invites us to pray like that. And yet, we don't put our faith in the results We put our faith in how God will work in those circumstances. We we pray, but if not, we pray your will be done as Jedediah led us in. We, We pray rooted in trust, but then we entrust the results to God. That uh, sermon I was listening to, to Martin Luther King Jr., he called this a particular kind of faith. He called it an if faith. That many of us have faith. We say, if you take care of me, God, and nothing bad happens, then I'll trust in you. He said, now if there's no diagnosis, then I'll trust in you. If you you protect my children, you know how important they are. If you protect them and watch over them and nothing bad happens, then I'll trust in you. If you bless me and show favor, then I will trust in you. God is not looking for that kind of faith. God is not looking for the if Faith. He's looking for the but if not. He's looking for his people to bring those requests, to, to bring that but say, God, I trust in you. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I'm going to give you this. And, and regardless of how it goes, that's how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were saying that we have placed our trust in the living God. We're living courageously. But in terms of consequence, that's that's up to him. I was trying to think of an example of this courageous, humble faith. And to be honest with you, it was hard. (laughs) Outside of, of this moment. I was thinking of my kids when we were in the midst of the struggle of the divorce and taking that away. And I remember jogging by a middle school and they were in another state. And I, and there was just, there was so much hardship and pain and struggle. And I felt led to pray that they would graduate from that middle school. It's an audacious, audacious prayer. I, I can't say I had great confidence, but I've, I felt led to pray that prayer. But then I did say, God, I, 
I don't know if that's your plan, but I just felt led to pray it. I'm going to pray it. And I'm going to trust you with the results. They ended up both graduating from that middle school and then high schools in the neighborhood. This this idea that I, I wanted to have I can't say I was very courageous in that moment, but I, I did say, your will be done, but I'm going to trust you in, in the midst of this. I, I want this, but if not, however this rolls out, I'm going to trust you. I was thinking of another story that's a, a little bit backwards. I had a friend who was accused by his ex-wife, of abusing the kids. And he prayed and prayed, and he finally decided that he would trust God no matter what, and he had resolved in his mind that he was going to be convicted and put in jail, and that he would look for ministry in jail. What a great perspective. The authorities found the accusations to be false. In fact, it unraveled her story and the struggle. And so he did not go to jail. In fact, he ended up with custody of the kids, right? And when I talked with him, he was somewhat confused and disillusioned. He was like, I was ready to go for, to jail and the Lord had said this, but now he's not. And I'm like, that doesn't sound like a horrible dilemma of faith. You, <laughs> he did better than you asked, right? But I thought there's just a, a humility in saying, okay, God, I, I'm going to let you, where, where the chips fall, I'm, I'm going to let you decide your will, your work. I'm going to pray very specifically. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe in you. I'm going to trust that you have good intentions for my life. And, and I don't know how this is going to work out. And yet I'm going to trust you. And in fact, I'm going to pray very specifically. But at the end of the day, humbly, your will, your kingdom, not mine. I think that's the attitude of prayer. This courageous, humble faith. At Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego demonstrate. And I do think there's an action that's also connected to this. And that action is, is simply this. That especially in the moments that we are unsure of what God is calling us to do, to the best of our ability, we do what is right regardless of consequence. That's so often we don't do what is right. Why? Because we don't want to face the consequences of what's that, what's right. This is a all through scripture, actually. Proverbs 21.3. To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. 
Sacrifice represents the ritual of sacrificing animals, Old Testament, in the temple. And, and what the uh, author of Proverbs is saying is he says, God is looking for people who in faith will do the right thing. That that's more important than the, than the practices of faith, than the rituals of faith. He's looking for those who will trust him enough, regardless of consequence, will do the right thing. The, the inspired authors in the New Testament pick up that idea, that, that simple thing of do the right thing. Paul in Romans 12, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. The authors return, do the right thing. That's the will of God. That's the way of God. If you want to live this kingdom life, then daily, regularly, you do the right thing. In fact, chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, God's not done with King Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to have a, this, this dream, and ultimately he's going to... Um, the threat is he's going to lose his mind. He calls Daniel in to interpret. And Daniel says, I'll interpret, but I'll also give you some free advice. He says this from Daniel 4. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what's right. And your wickedness by being, uh, by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity, prosperity will continue. I love that connection of doing what's right and being kind. Most of you have heard me pray, uh, preach about this idea of doing an act of kindness daily, that kindness should be a part of our rhythm of life, that that, sh that should be a discipline, whether we're in the grocery store or at work or at school, that, that this invitation to be kind, to live with kindness, right here, here is that connection, is that if you want to live a life that honors God, do what is right. That's our constant desire. Kindness and righteousness, to do what is right. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom and his and his righteousness. We, we do what is right. How do we know what God wants from us? We say, God, what's the right thing to do? I was thinking of, uh, again, just because of Martin Luther King Jr., I was reading and listening and reflecting a little bit. Again, I was reading about Rosa Parks, who was one of the most famous names in the civil rights history. She's remembered for... Re refusing to get up out of her seat on the bus and give it to a white man. In her uh, book, Quiet Strength, love the title there, she writes this, when I sat down on the bus that day, I had no idea history was being made. I was only thinking of getting home, but I had made up my mind. After so many years of being a victim of the mistreatment my people suffered not giving up my seat. There's courage there, isn't it? And whatever I had to face afterwards, that wasn't important. I'm just going to do what's right. 
do the right thing. I did not feel any fear sitting there. I felt the Lord would give me the strength to endure whatever I had to face. It was time for someone to stand up, or in my case, to sit down. (laughs) So I refused to move. Would you say that's a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego present day? Yeah? There is a courageous and a humble faith. I'm going to do what's right and trust God with the consequence. How do you know when those big moments are going to come? I was thinking these are big moments. And I would say this. I think that if you want to be prepared to live a courageous, humble faith in the big moments, then live courageously and with humility in the small moments, in the day-to-day. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who remembers Daniel chapter 1, when they were in this new context, everything is afraid, and what they do? There's the food and drink, they said. They were with Daniel. Can we... We want to live crazy. They didn't, you know, picket signs or all this. They said, no, no, no. In the, in the small thing, in their context, we want to live faithfully. We want to do the right thing. And then they worked with their supervisor or master or whatever to, to, to work in that small thing. And in those small moments then, they decided that they were going to live for the Lord, that they were going to do the right thing. They were going to humbly live the life that he's inviting them to live. And then in this big moment, in this life-threatening moment, they didn't even blink. They lived with courageous, humble faith. Friends, most of us are not in this big, life-threatening moments in our lives. And yet, in the day-to-day, we can live courageously and humbly when we handle our money, when we pay our taxes. We can do the right thing. In our day-to-day relationships with our kids or our friends or our parents, We can do right by them, sometimes speaking the truth in love, sometimes forgiving, sometimes not speaking and only praying. That we can do the right thing in the the moments when we make decisions about what we look at, internet, entertainment. We can do the right thing in our actions, and our thoughts when no one is looking. Today, we can do the right thing. Jesus said this, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Friends, I believe that God wants to bring an increase to each and every one of you. He wants to increase your spiritual authority and influence. He wants to increase the impact that you're making in the lives of the people around you. And he's looking for those 
who will have courageous and humble faith in the small things, in the day-to-day things, because he wants to bring big things into your life. He wants to grow your faith and to grow through the influence of this church and in your lives. So would you ask, I want to ask us two questions to end. In fact, just uh, close your eyes for a moment if the worship team wants to, to come forward. There's these two questions I thought we would ask. In terms of courageous Do I need to stop compromising in the small things in any way? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you're compromising relationship with a friend or a spouse, children. And you're not living courageously. Maybe it's at work, your profession. You're cutting corners because you're concerned about the consequences if you don't. You're not living with integrity. Would you ask the Spirit of God, there's a moment, a thing in your life, And then also humble, humility. Is there an area that you need to let God be God? Let his will be done, not yours. His kingdom be advanced, not yours. That you're living with an if faith, not a but if not faith. That you're not Praying with the humility that he's inviting us to pray with. Just between you and the Lord, would you take a moment to listen? Listen.